The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found again once, once again, sorry, in the book. We are now in Colossians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I speak. Please pray with me. Lord, we know the importance of prayer. And it's why we pray even before looking at your word. Or we pray before we sing. We pray after we sing. We pray without ceasing. Because we know how much we need you. And all the more, Lord, as we engage your word. Because we know or we feel our own bodily weakness our propensity to distraction, or we, we feel our weakness in just even understanding Your Word. Lord, it, our hearts are often hard to receive Your truth. And so we pray that You would soften them so we would not just learn more information, but Lord, that, we would, we would enla- that You would enlarge our hearts to be the Christians that You delight in those who are humble who are in contrite of heart and who tremble at your word and not just that we would tremble at your word lord but that we would be empowered by it strengthened by it to be a people who are faithful and we ask particularly that you would cause us even through this text to be a people who are more devoted to prayer we ask this in christ's name So the title of this message really comes out of the first phrase. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Some translations say be devoted to prayer. What is prayer? The answer that's given in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. And I like it. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will In the name of Christ, with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's a pretty long definition, but the very core of this definition is it is an offering up of our desires unto God. An offering up of our desires. Now it goes on to explain other things, the the need to confess and uh, give thanks Uh, to pray according to His will, but the core is the offering up of our desires. I mean, very much in line with Psalm 62, 8 that says, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge to us. Like, He's he's our refuge. He he wants us to run to Him. Like, if if there were barbarians storming a, a, a village, they would run into a castle or a refuge or a fortress for safety. God wants us to constantly be running to Him for safety. 
We need to tell all our soul to Christ. Actually, I get that phrase actually from John Payton, the, the missionary to the New Hebrides. Many of you maybe recall that when he was uh, basically at the very end of his ministry on, on, on that first island, I believe it was Tana, uh, he lost everything. He'd already lost family members. Uh, the, the natives had turned against him. There was no longer anybody supporting him. And he had to flee for his life and climb up in a tree. And as he's up there in his tree, not knowing if, if he's going to be found, if he's going to die that evening, he writes this in his memoir. He said, Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw near to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. He just told all his heart. And he said it was one of the greatest moments in his life. He would never give up any other that moment for any other day. He would gladly receive it because of that experience of just being able to tell all his soul to Jesus. I think that's remarkable because few people honestly want to know your soul. Few people actually care. Some do. But I think often as we start to begin to reveal our hearts, it's just people stop listening. Or they just don't, they, they want to think about what, and talk about what they want to talk about. But very rarely can you find somebody that really wants to know your heart, your soul. But God wants that he wants you to tell all your heart to him to come to him and reveal everything that's going on in your soul i mean prayer is one of the fundamental aspects of what it means to be a christian in fact theologians have long recognized that that prayer is uh one of the first evidences of spiritual life that compulsion to pray as it says in Galatians 4, 6, because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that's why theologians have often likened to prayer, prayer, likened prayer to a baby's cry. When a baby's born, it cries because it wants its mother. It wants food. Likewise, Christians recognize they need their father. They, they need comfort they need food they need life and just like a baby's cry is a sign of life as well as need likewise prayer is a sign of spiritual life and an expression of our need for him but even as we grow spiritually probably all of us forget how needy we really are we become less and less dependent upon god In fact, the opposite should take place. As we grow spiritually, our need and dependence upon God doesn't actually diminish. It it increases. And I think arguably the most mature Christians throughout history, those who have grown up to be strong oaks in the faith, are those whose lives have been characterized by devotion to prayer. And this is because they're convinced on account of their own failure and their own experience that apart from God, they can do nothing. 
that any sort of fruit, any sort of growth that's going to take place, he's got to bring. They recognize God chooses to work through the means of prayer. In fact, he loves to work through the means of prayer. And the history of spiritual revivals affirms this. Like the very first revival in all of history took place after 10 days of prayer. We read of the disciples in Acts 1.14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And then the Spirit came. And all the spiritual revivals in history, I think, can be directly linked to people who had devoted themselves to prayer. St. Patrick was known to pray for hours a day, and God used him to convert nearly a whole nation to Christ, a nation of former pirates and pagans. The reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin were both men who spent hours a day in prayer, despite all their workload. Luther famously said this, If I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. The great revival under Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century in our nation began actually with his famous call to prayer. And the marvelous work of grace among the Native Americans under David Brainerd had its origin in the days and nights that David Brainerd would pray for their conversion. Ian Bounds in his famous book, Power Through Prayer, says this, What the church needs today is not more machinery, or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. It is presumptuous to think that we're going to have any sort of spiritual impact on our life, on the lives of those around us, on the lost, if we are not devoted men to prayer. And in the passage before us, Paul identifies five things that should characterize all our prayers. He says it should be characterized by steadfastness. Be steadfast in prayer. Alertness, thankfulness, evangelism, and then a a prayer that the truth would be clearly understood. Let's look at that first point. To be steadfast in prayer. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. We are often busy with many things, but the thing that is often the most important and the most effective is often the thing that's neglected. This is true in ministry as well as in our just day-to-day lives. And I think this is largely the effect of living in a very production-oriented society. We we believe that the more 
the more productive we are, the better we're doing. If we appear productive, we assume that we're making an impact. And there, there's a lot of things happening in the United States today. There's a lot of things happening in churches today. But I would also say very little spiritual fruit is being born. In comparison to the amount of apparent productivity. Just look at the state of our country. Not to mention the world. And it would suggest that there's very little spiritual productivity taking place. I mean, honestly, Christians often can be like gerbils. Using up all their energy, spending and being spent, but accomplishing little because they simply fail to pray. They work hard. They study hard. Maybe even in preparation for a Bible study, they might devote themselves to 20 hours of study and yet only give maybe five minutes to prayer. Why do we neglect prayer so often? Well, here are some thoughts. We're anxious and worried. And therefore, because of that, we want to see an immediate impact. We want to see God act now because we're afraid. We're scared. And so if we don't see an immediate response to our prayer, we believe, well, God's maybe not going to do anything. It needs to be in my hands. I need to take action rather than just waiting upon the Lord. And so we, we put our trust in what we see here and now rather than in the Lord. I think often it's also nearsightedness. We don't see the result of our prayers. And because we're very impatient creatures, and because we want what we want and we want it now, we just take it rather than praying and waiting upon the Lord. I think also a, a reason is we often don't know how to pray. And because we're not sure what we should say or what we should be asking for, we just simply don't pray. I don't know what I should pray, so I'm just not going to. It also takes work and effort to pray, especially to start a consistent habit of prayer. It takes focus. It takes discipline. And we're lazy. I think also people frequently misunderstand that a disciplined player, prayer life is legalistic. If, if I'm dependent upon a rigid devotion to prayer, then I must be being legalistic rather than being driven by love. And so they don't pursue discipline. I think often, too, we're just slaves to our emotions. We just don't feel like praying. We feel like sitting in front of the TV. We feel like going to sleep. We feel like just talking with our friends or our spouse rather than talking to God. And so we don't. And I think also just time. Not because there's not enough time in the day to pray, but because we are irresponsible with the time that we do have. And so we don't have the time to pray because we've squandered other opportunities with time. And I imagine that all of us can relate to John Newton's struggle 
in regard to prayer. He wrote this. How strange is it that when I have the fullest convictions that prayer is not only my duty, not only necessary as the appointed means of receiving those supplies without which I can do nothing, but likewise the greatest honor and privilege to which I can be admitted in the present life, I should still find myself so unwilling to engage in it. And he's, why this tension? Why, even though I know these things about prayer, why is it that I am unwilling to engage? And he says this, I think it's not prayer itself that I'm weary of, but such prayers as mine. How can it be accounted prayer when the heart is so little affected? When it's polluted with such a mixture of vile and vain imaginations, when I hardly know what to say myself, but I feel my mind collected one minute and the next, my thoughts are gone to the ends of the earth. And he says, yes, it's possible. It's possible that some of our prayers of which we're most ashamed are actually the most pleasing to the Lord. And for that reason, because we're ashamed of them, we are favored with what we call enlargement because we come become away. We come away tolerably satisfied with ourselves and think we've done well. Right. His point is often maybe the reason we're not satisfied in prayers because we put so much confidence in ourselves, Rather than God, we think that we got to come up with just the right word. We got to come up with just the right phrase. Or put in just the right amount of time, thinking that the answer to prayer is dependent upon what we're doing in regard to prayer, rather than upon the person whom we're asking for help from. Right? When there's an emergency, your, your child gets hurt, he doesn't come and try to think through, okay, how do I ask mom and dad to give me the band-aid that I need? He just comes screaming. And mom and dad know exactly what to do. And so Paul exhorts the Colossians. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now that phrase, continue steadfastly, is actually one word in the Greek. And it means to give constant attention to a thing. To not give up. In fact, it occurs many times in reference to prayer in the New Testament. Acts 1.14 All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Acts 6.4, the apostles said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Romans 12.12 uses the phrase where Paul exhorts, exhorts the Romans to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Be devoted to prayer is the idea. And it's the clear expectation in the New Testament that Christians will be devoted to prayer. God commands us to be devoted to prayer precisely because this is what makes our efforts effective. Again, it's not our power. It's not our work. It's not our cleverness. It's our prayer, our asking Him to make our work effective. And so, quite frankly, if you don't want to waste time in your life, pray so that your efforts will be effective and actually spiritually productive. If you want to see people truly grow spiritually, 
pray for them. Don't just talk to them. Don't just confront them. Don't just rebuke them. Don't just encourage them. Do those things, but also devote yourself to praying for them. And not just once, but daily, again and again, batter God with prayers. That's why we looked at Luke 18. Jesus gave that parable so that Christians would continue steadfastly in prayer and not lose heart. If you really want to see people get saved, pray for them. And again, not just once, but again and again and again, even after you've shared the gospel with them and they've rejected it and they've turned away, keep praying. Many of you are here today, believers in Jesus Christ, because your spouse prayed again and again and again and kept sharing and kept pleading with God for you to be saved. And that is why you here stand with no condemnation because of his or her prayer for you. And it's the same way we should pray for one another and our coworkers and our friends. If you have the opportunity to share the gospel, don't just share it, but pray for those people. Beg God to cause the truth that you share to have a deep spiritual impact in their heart. Badger him for their salvation. Adoniram Judson once wrote this. He said, God loves importunate prayer so much that he will not give us much blessing without it. And the reason that he loves such prayer is that he loves us and knows that it's a necessary preparation for our receiving the richest blessings which he is waiting and longing to bestow. He says, I never prayed sincerely and earnestly for anything, but it came at some time. No matter at how distant a day, somehow, in some shape, probably the last I would have devised, it came. What Justin is saying is, when there was something I really wanted and I devoted myself to praying for it, again and again with all my heart, at some time in the future it finally came. And often in ways I never expected it to come. His point is, prayer is powerful. And it's powerful because God loves us. And He wants to bless us. But in order for us to receive that blessing, we need to learn to come to Him. Be encouraged by this testimony of effective prayer by George Mueller. In November 1844, he wrote in his journal, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether I was sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Every day he prayed for those five individuals. After 18 months elapsed, the first of the five was converted. And I thanked God and I prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thank God for the second, and I prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thank God for the three and went on praying for the other two. And these two remain unconverted. Thirty-six years later, he wrote that the other two, sons of one of Mueller's friends, were still not converted. And he wrote this, But I hope in God, I pray on 
and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. And then in 1897, 52 years after he began to daily pray for these people, without interruption, those two men were finally converted after he died. The point is, it was on account of his prayer, not just on account of his sharing the gospel. Secondly, we not only need to be steadfast in prayer, we need to be alert in prayer. And why should we pray with alertness? Because we're told to, quite simply. It says be watchful in it. It means to be give strict attention to. The, the idea here is that we need to be spiritually aware of what's going on around us. Alert to what's going on spiritually. Just think about how a watchman pays attention to every sound. Anything that might be out of place. Or, or like a, a police officer who's on patrol. Constantly paying attention. If, if something's not right, they look into it or they call it in. And likewise, that's how we need to be spiritually. When we engage in conversation with other people. If, if, if what... Are they saying, do they look different? Is, is something they're saying off? When we're watching the news, do we have an eye to what's going on spiritually in the world? What are the spiritual trends in society? And it's worth asking, what is it that hinders spiritual alertness? Well, I think it's whatever hinders alertness, period. Distractions, um, just self-centeredness, just being busyness, being preoccupied. I mean, just think, we, we like to make fun of people who are walking down the street with their face in their phones. They're not paying attention to anything that's gone around, going on around them or they got their earphones in and they can't hear people screaming right next to them because they're just locked into their own little world. But that, frankly, is what many Christians can be like, spiritually speaking. They, they're just living their life, and the whole world's spiritually burning down around them, and they're just doing their own thing. And Paul's saying, don't be that way. Be alert. And not just to what's going on in your life, but alert to what's going on in everybody's life around you. Not to be a busybody, that's not the point, but to care for one another so that we can Pray for one another. That's the point, right? Be alert in prayer so that you might know how you should pray for people. We need one another to pray for us. Richard Vermbrand in his book, Torture for Christ, described how many pastors in Romania failed in their discernment in regard to communism as it crept into the country. This is what he said. Once the communists came to power, they skillfully used the means of seduction toward the church. The language of love and the language of seduction are the same. The one who wishes a girl for a wife and the one who wishes her only for a night both say the words, I love you. Jesus told us to discern between the language of seduction and the language of love and to know the wolves clad in sheepskin from the real sheep. Unfortunately, when the communists came to power, thousands of priests, pastors and ministers did not know how to discern the difference between the two voices. 
They had no discernment because they weren't on the alert. And they were seduced into embracing something that poisoned their nation. And really, it suffered, I would argue, the worst persecution of any nation under communism to date. Thirdly, we need to pray with thanksgiving. Paul says, with thanksgiving. One of the most remarkable things, I think, in this letter is how often Paul repeats this injunction to give thanks. Right in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 3, he speaks of his own prayer and he notes that he gives thanks for, to God for them. And then a few verses later, in verse 12, he prays that they would give thanks. And of course, you recall just a few weeks ago, his barrage of thanksgiving in chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Three times in three verses, after every exhortation, he says, and give thanks. And the point being there is that Christians demonstrate what they worship by giving thanks. Because it acknowledges that we don't assume that or presume that we deserve anything. But that everything we have is a blessing from God. And when we give thanks, it shows we don't put confidence in ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. But we live for Him. It's an exp- Thanksgiving is an expression of worship. And this is why we give thanks every time we sit down to eat. We, we don't bless the food. The food doesn't need our blessing. It's inanimate. It doesn't care. <laughs> we don't bless the food. We're giving thanks. And this is the example that was provided by Jesus. When Jesus fed the 5,000 with the five barley loaves and the two fish, that miracle occurred after he lifted them up and gave thanks. John six eleven says, After he gave thanks, they had so much fish as much as they wanted. Even on the night when he was betrayed, it says in Luke 22, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And then he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Every time we see Jesus eating, he's giving thanks. And that's why we give thanks when we eat. We're not blessing the food. We're just thanking God that he's provided it for us. Interestingly, Paul also, after 14 days in a deadly storm, he gathered the ship's company together. And he gathered them to eat. And it says, when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. What's remarkable about this is that he's doing this in the midst of a storm in which they don't know if they're going to die. In fact, it was everybody's expectation, not Paul's, but everybody else that they were going to die. And so Paul gathers them, gives them food and then gives thanks. And what a great expression of what it means to give thanks in all circumstances. In fact, this is what we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is the will of God. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know God's will for your life? Give thanks in all circumstances. So we should be steadfast in prayer. We should be alert in prayer. We should be thankful in prayer. We should, fourthly, 
Pray for evangelistic opportunities. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Paul writes, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. That that phrase, a door for the word, it's a very common metaphor in the scripture for a wide open opportunity. It's a clear opportunity that's given. Uh, Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 16.9 when he describes an opportunity to minister. He says, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me. But there are many adversaries. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says an open door for the gospel was given to him in the city of Troas. So when he sees an opportunity to minister through preaching, he calls it an open door. In other words, there's a clear opportunity and I'm going to take advantage of it. And so he's in Colossians, he's asking the believers that God would provide for him an opportunity to preach. In particular, to preach the gospel. That's what he means by the mystery of Christ. As we've seen earlier in the letter, the mystery of Christ is is the gospel that although he was God, he took on the form of man and paid the penalty for our sins that we might be saved. And this is the story that he loves to share. And Paul's typical open door for ministry was Jewish synagogues. That's the first place he'd go whenever he entered a new city. And, and that was an open door for him because he was a respected and well-educated Jewish rabbi. And it was common for somebody with that sort of uh, education to get those opportunities. And so he would share... And usually he, w- he was welcomed until Jews from other cities came and caused a ruckus and he would get then persecuted and kicked out. But at this point, Paul's in prison. So he can't utilize this evangelistic strategy that he normally used. So he's asking that God would open a door for the gospel while he's in prison. Because that's why he's in prison. That's why he's in chains. So he's like, if that's my job, if that's my business, God has appointed me to share the gospel. Ask that God would please open a door so that I could be effective in what he's called me to do. Because I can't do what I normally do. And remarkably, we know in the book of uh, Philippians that God opened up a wide door through the Praetorian Guard so that the gospel spread even into... Um, the Caesar's household. It's remarkable. And so we, while he's in prison, he wants help in continuing the work. And we can sympathize with Paul because we all know what it's like to desire to share the gospel with people and it just seems like constantly a closed door again and again and again. They just don't want to hear it. Or we begin, we begin to make progress and then they get distracted. Or... They hear what we say, but they just totally misunderstand what we're trying to to communicate to them because of their own errant preconceived news about the truth. And so we keep knocking, but doors continue to remain closed. And so we're desperate for God to open up a door. God, what is it that's going to open up a door for me to share the truth in a way that they would understand it? Give me words. Give me an opportunity. And Paul 
Paul, likewise, is of flesh and blood just like us. And he knows unless the Lord opens those doors, those unbelievers probably aren't going to hear it. So we should pray for open doors. This was clearly the passion of Gladys Alward, the famous missionary of China. She regularly sought opportunities to share the gospel with people. When she first got to China, she and her co-worker um, discovered that the, the Chinese people love stories. And so they, they bought an inn. And when travelers had come in, they would share stories from the gospels. And they'd share the gospel, the good news of Christ, and people would come to know the Lord that way. Later on, she was approached by the governor, called a Mandarin, with an even greater open door for the gospel. The government had actually outlawed a, a practice known as foot binding, but they had no way of regulating the practice. And so they came to her because her feet weren't bound, being a foreigner, and so she, she could travel far distances easily, and she knew the language, and she was a woman. So she could go into places where only women were allowed to go to see if these villagers were actually enforcing this ban. And so she welcomed the opportunity and she became a part of this community. She could, while she's with these women, open up her soul and share the gospel. And through her work, she led many people to Christ. When asked, why are you in a foreign land and binding the feet of women? She would say, it's because I want to share with you the good news of my Savior. Like it was an open door and she recognized it. And likewise, we shouldn't be afraid to pray for such clear open doors, even here in Portland or in your workplaces, to share the gospel. Finally, Paul exhorts the Colossians to pray that that truth would be clearly understood. He says that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, notice, notice what he says again, that it's clarity of the truth that's the goal. When he's sharing, that's what is foremost on his mind. How can I make the truth clear, the word of God clear? It's not how can I have an emotional impact so that they see their sin and weep. It's not how many decisions for Christ can I drum up. It's how can I get people to hear clearly the truth. The goal in teaching the Bible is not to astound an audience with what we know. With how clever we are. It's to astound them with the truth. And they're not going to be astounded if they don't understand what the Bible's saying. Like we, we want to be so clear about what we're teaching them that when they read the Bible six months from now, they can go to that passage and understand what it's saying. What they feel in the moment when we're teaching them doesn't really matter. Maybe matters a little bit, but what really matters is do they understand it? Is it clear to them? Every element in our teaching should be focused upon this end. How do we make what the Bible is saying crystal clear? It's not how eloquent or clever we can be. It's not, do they remember that illustration? It's not even what stood out to us as we were studying. 
The point isn't just to share what we liked, what we know, what we thought was interesting, but for them to understand what it's saying. And sometimes we can share those things and it's helpful, but we only want to share what is helpful to the end that they understand with clarity what the Bible's teaching. That's the goal. We need to follow the example of the post-exile Jewish priests in Nehemiah 8.8. It says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. They read clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. It does no good if they hear it, but don't get it. So they read clearly and then they explained it. And sometimes I've sat under lectures or sermons and honestly, just it sounds like the teacher is just more interested in demonstrating what they know or proving that they've done their homework rather than making the text clear. Hear what Charles Spurgeon says to pastors in his book, Lectures to My Students. He says, brethren, we should cultivate a clear style. When a man does not make me understand what he means... It's because he himself does not know what he means. An average hearer who is unable to follow the course of thought of the preacher ought not to worry himself, but to blame the preacher whose business it is to make the matter clear. If you look down into a well, if it be empty, it will appear to be very deep. But if there be water in it, you will see its brightness. I believe that many deep preachers are simply so because they're like dry wells with nothing whatever in them except decaying leaves, a few stones, and perhaps a dead cat or two. All right, so if you ever come to me after a a sermon and say, Pastor, that was a deep message, I'm going to think, how many dead cats were in that sermon? (laughs) Like Paul, Charles Spurgeon Drove to teach with clarity. That was the goal. And arguably, that's why he was one of the greatest, I'd say even the greatest preacher, the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. And his sermons continue to, to produce gospel fruit today. People are saved even today just by reading his messages. But when Charles Spurgeon was asked what he thought made his preaching so effective, do you know what he said? He says, it's because my people pray for me. Once a group of young ministers actually came to see him at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And after showing up, he showed them just the huge sanctuary that housed thousands of people. And afterwards, he offered if they would be interested in seeing his boiler room. And they're like, no, not really. But he, he, he insisted and he led them down to the basement and there they found a hundred people praying. This, Spurgeon said with a smile, is my boiler room. The point is not just that we should pray for pastors, though. It's not just that we should pray for our missionaries, but that we should pray for gospel advancement everywhere And in the lives of one another. And we need to devote ourselves to pray. And be a people who are committed to these five characteristics of prayer.
Let's pray. Father, we want to pray with full hearts. We want to pour our hearts out before You. And in particular, Lord, we want to be people who have steadfastness in their prayers, who are alert in their prayers, who are thankful. Lord, who pray for You to save people. That we'd be evangelistic in our prayers, not just asking You for things to make our lives easier, but for You to continue to use our lives for the things that matter most. And Lord, we pray that You would continue to help us have clarity in communicating to people the hope that we have within us. Whether that's in a small group or a discipleship group or in a book study or in a sermon or in a Sunday school class. Whether it's to children or to adults, God, help us to be clear so that Your Word would be clear. So that Your people would cling to Your truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.